You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host in New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Paramaswaran from Washington, D.C. Hey, Prashant. How's it going today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. I thought we'd take today's episode as an opportunity to reflect on the rather stalled diplomacy between the United States and North Korea. Uh, and there's a couple of good pegs to pick up this conversation that we've been having, I think, you know, um, across several weeks uh, as diplomacy has been going on since really the beginning of 2018 with the Winter Olympics. Um, but what we've seen since the end of the second U.S.-North Korea summit in Hanoi, Vietnam, has really been a period of extended silence. I think we're going on six weeks now. But we've just seen uh, today on uh, April 11th, President Moon Jae-in of South Korea come to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Trump. And President Moon's obviously been a major catalyst for this diplomacy. He's on multiple occasions successfully rescued the U.S.-North Korea process, right? That's something we shouldn't forget. Last May, uh, Trump canceled the first summit after a uh, rather spicy North Korean statement criticizing, um, I believe it was uh, John Bolton and Mike Pence. And he called off the summit. Moon Jae-in rushed to uh, meet with Kim Jong-un and managed to salvage that. He did that again with the inter-Korean summit at Pyongyang in September after the August cancellation of Pompeo's trip. So Moon's really been a critical player, and he's back here again trying to revive this process after what happened in Hanoi. So that's one part of what we'll talk about. Uh, but then also we have a set of uh, interesting um, statements by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, who just addressed the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea. Uh, so I think both of those are a good place to start. But let's begin with the uh, ongoing visit today in Washington, uh, where you're based. Um, so what's your read of um, what's happened so far between uh, President Moon and President Trump? Uh, do you think that this round... Moon might be walking away from Washington a little bit more disappointed than he's been in the past when he's tried to save the process with the U.S. in the North? Yeah, I think that's that's really the critical question here, because as you said, I mean, his, you know, his role in the diplomacy uh, thus far and the North Korean process has been really, really critical. And he's tried to salvage and I think keep this process going a number of times right now. Um, I think, I mean, the, the, the meetings just ended, but I think based on what we know from the statements so far, um, it does seem like it, it is a little bit disappointing, I think, from a South Korean perspective and from his perspective. Um, it is, I think, notable that it was a very quick meeting. It's like, I think the total visit was about, you know, just 24 hours, essentially, Right. here and back, here and back. Um, and he he met with um, Trump, but he also met with Pence and and Pompeo as well during the visit. Um, and I the sense that you got um, from from what Trump said and what uh, Moon seemed to be indicating um, was that you could see that Trump was trying very hard to communicate that there is some room open for diplomacy and perhaps some sort of aid uh, that could be allowed to the North Koreans, but the it doesn't seem like the wiggle room there is going to be nearly enough for the extent to which Moon is trying to get for his part of the process, right? I think we've talked about this before on the podcast as being, if you think about this very a little bit simplistically, but mm -hmm. you know, just for the sake of explanation, you know, there's a U.S. North Korea track, there's a North Korea South Korea track, and there's a U.S. South Korea track, and there are all these various things that you need to get the calibration right. Um, I think if Moon was trying to get the calibration right for these various relationships, uh, I don't think the U.S.-North Korea track is where he would like to be for North Korea-South Korea cooperation to pursue. He may still be able to do some of that, but I don't think it goes as far as where he would like it to go. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, let's dig in a little bit more, I guess, to the specifics of what the two leaders said. Uh, so Trump, um, so, you know, after Hanoi, I made kind of the controversial, I guess, a little provocative argument that Trump finally learned something about North Korea. He learned that sanctions matter and sanctions are kind of the central issue, right? I think the press conference at Hanoi, if you go back and watch it, uh, that kind of comes out that he he says, uh, you know, they wanted the sanctions lifted and we couldn't do that. Um, and, so, you know, just for listeners that may not be aware of the offer that was on the table in Hanoi, um, effectively... The offer was that the North Koreans were willing to give the United States uh, access to a few facilities associated with plutonium and uranium production at Yongbyon, which is the well-known North Korean facility. It's about an eight-square-mile uh, complex with over 300 buildings, but they were going to offer access to these few buildings that directly concern the production of fissile material. There are other sites, of course, in North Korea, so that wouldn't cut off North Korea's ability to produce nuclear materials. But in exchange for that, what they wanted was they wanted all of the clauses pertaining to their civilian economy across the five most recent UN Security Council resolutions passed between 2016 and 2017 to be removed. So at the press conference, Trump described that as Kim Jong-un effectively wanting all of the sanctions removed. And, you know, people criticize that. But really, um, that does represent about, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the economic pressure on the North Korean economy. It does come from those five resolutions. You know, it's not symmetrical across time. We have Resolution 1718 in 2006, but the earlier sanctions were primarily focused on nonproliferation and uh, preventing North Korea from being able to acquire the materials that it needs to advance its nuclear program. But the later sanctions really focus on economic pressure under the maximum pressure era. Um, so, you know, now fast forward to what happened today. You know, Trump described the sanctions pressure on North Korea as fair. And uh, he, you know, quote unquote fair. He actually used that word. And um, I think, you know, that'd be a little bit disappointing for Moon because I think the South Koreans have long recognized that in order for this process to move forward, there needs to be an openness to kind of step-by-step piecemeal deals, smaller deals that allow for limited sanctions relief for limited concessions from North Korea. Um, and that doesn't seem to be changing, right? There is some talk about humanitarian aid, but the North Koreans don't see that as a concession, really. That's kind of something that has to come anyways, because right. yeah, humanitarian aid can't be used as a uh, bargaining chip, really. So as far as I can tell, I mean, the needle really hasn't moved here for Moon. Um, and, you know, the South Koreans had to have known that before. The United States has been communicating for a very long time that sanctions relief is not realistic until they see movement from North Korea. Of course, uh, you know, we with the Trump administration, as in so many things, we do have confusion again, because Trump implied that he sees some room for a step by step approach. Um, (laughs) But then he also said that, you know, right now, the focus is on getting the big deal on denuclearization. Uh, So if I'm Kim Jong Un, and I'm watching what just happened in Washington, D.C., I don't think, you know, I take a message of confidence away that things have really changed since Hanoi. And there is a reason now to reconvene talks with the United States, because I think that's kind of the message that the North Koreans have been waiting for. If we even go back to before Hanoi, uh, that was the message from Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech that uh, mm-hmm. we implemented all of these concessions last year, you know, uh, demolishing the Pungiri nuclear test site and uh, dismantling the uh, engine test stand at Sohei and the satellite staging building, both of which have now gone back up, as we've seen with satellite imagery. Um, so, you know, I think that's the North Koreans saying that nothing they've done so far is truly irreversible and that things can go back. But looking at the moon Trump encounter today, I just don't see a uh, that broader picture uh, changing. Uh, I don't know if you yeah. uh, um, agree with that or want to discuss that a little bit more. 
I no, I, th I think that that's spot on in terms of um, where Trump is. I think the the lack of clarity is really why we, we're already seeing right, like various reports coming out and some accounts, some of observers saying, you know, there really wasn't much of a change. But you, you're seeing other reports saying, oh, you know, there is this new step by step approach, and Trump says that various deals can happen. But you know, as as we've talked about before, Trump says you know about three or four different versions of accounts of things in in a single press conference. So yeah. It's, it really is difficult to see where he's at. But I think the other thing that was really interesting was, um, you know, listening to him speak as well. It, it did seem like he was trying to pivot a lot towards domestic political issues and talk about, you know, the U.S. economy. And, and I, I think there always is this impression, and regardless of whether it's true or not, that, you know, even as we're talking about this North Korea issue and the dynamics here, that, you know, given that 2020 is so close, you know, is Trump really going to be wedded and, and, and fully invested in this from a perspective of a foreign policy issue? Or is he going to look at this more as kind of a, OK, I'm going to put this on hold. And yes, I, I will do the minimum required to keep this on track. But, you know, I really I tried for this big deal. I, I couldn't get it. I'm not sure what's going to happen here, but um, I'm going to keep the focus where it's at. And it's not really going to go much further than that. And so I, I did sense that there, were, there was a little bit of that at play as well. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I was actually speaking on a panel yesterday where I kind of got a question about, you know, what the most likely thing to happen now is. And, you know, obviously there is the scenario where things do really collapse and we go back to fire and fury in the United States threatening North Korea and North Korea resuming provocations. I don't think that's in North Korea's interest right now because uh, a benefit of this whole diplomatic process has been that the pressure in the maximum pressure campaign has really been let loose, right? So uh, the recent United Nations panel of experts report, for example, found that China and Russia were not doing a great job of implementing sanctions. And that was actually changing towards the end of 2007, uh, uh, 2017. Um, after the uh, final ICBM test, uh, you know, November, December, uh, sanctions implementation was getting tighter. And of course, sanctions still continue to irk North Korea. They clearly care about it, given the ask in Hanoi. But um you're right that, you know, Trump might simply choose to make this a back burner issue and continue to do whatever it takes to prevent this from collapsing. Right. So one of the one of the uh, North Korean approaches after Hanoi has been to continue to emphasize that Trump and Kim have a good relationship. And Trump has been saying that, too, that he and Kim have a good relationship. So as long as the two leaders feel good about each other, you know, maybe they're not going to meet for a third summit anytime soon, but maybe we can avoid a total collapse. Um, and I think that's actually in Trump's interest, given that if this were to collapse and there were to be further North Korean provocations, for example, that would be a giveaway to the Democrats in the campaign who'd criticize Trump for mishandling the North Korea issue, uh, which a lot of them haven't been doing, actually. Uh, so that, I think, is an interesting domestic political angle to this. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I guess that's probably a, a good time to pivot to the second part of the conversation on the developments in North Korea, right? Um, you know, you mentioned the uh, Kim Jong-un's remarks um, at the plenary session of the ruling Workers' Party of Korea um, that happened just before uh, Trump and Moon were, were meeting that got a lot of press, um, but also other developments that have been happening, right? Like we've been hearing about, you know, the potential for a another military parade that the North Koreans are doing, occasional focus on, you know, are the North Koreans going to restart certain facilities and, you know, progress that they're making on, the, on their program. So how should we sort of think about that domestic political context amidst this? 
Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the Supreme People's Assembly of North Korea is meeting um, and April 15th is a big day in North Korea. It's the Day of the Sun. It's Kim Il-sung's birthday. And the North Koreans have been known in recent years to do, do parades to, to mark that occasion, but it's not an annual occurrence. Uh, so there has been some activity spotted at the parade training grounds, but it doesn't look like previous years. So if they do something, it'll probably be much smaller than in previous years and probably not include things like ballistic missiles. That's just my expectation. Um but on the flip side, uh, you know, I think something that maybe gets left out is uh, the extent to which Kim Jong-un's embarrassment in Hanoi um, may have indicated, you know, the so-called hardliners within the country. Uh, you know, we don't really know much about factionalism in North Korea directly, but there have been a few statements that imply that Kim is dealing with some domestic pressure. Uh, so um, Che Sun-hui, uh, the vice minister of foreign affairs, very experienced uh, hand in North Korea dealing with the United States and a March 15th press conference remarked that, you know, Kim went to Hanoi despite thousands of petitions from people in the munitions industry in the country, you know, warning him not to go. But he went anyways. And of course, the result in Hanoi was disappointing. So the question is, you know, is Kim now dealing with that fallout domestically? And of course, you know, we're not going to see direct signs in North Korean state media where everything is calibrated to make sure that the state appears like a unitary monolith. But North Korea is like anywhere else on Earth and that politics does exist. Even in authoritarian monolithic systems, there is a form of politics. And um, now, you know, the call, um, you know, some analysts have been saying that, well, with the outcome in Hanoi, you know, Kim's been, he's had, you know, he has egg on his face and he needs to demonstrate that he's strong internally. So he's going to carry out provocations to show to internal stakeholders, you know, let's say in the Korean People's Army, that he takes national defense and nuclear weapons seriously. That might be a little bit overstated. But certainly, um, I think what we're seeing now is North Korea really hunkering down and saying that we're going to persist uh, under sanctions. Um, so, what what Kim reported at the fourth plenary meeting of the Seventh Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea, which met uh, on April 11th, um, in April 11th in North Korea, with the time zone difference meant that it was right before the Moon-Trump meeting, as you said. But what he pointed out was um, that it was, you know, with, with no sanctions really forthcoming, uh, everybody in North Korea, the Workers' Party, have to, you know, pull up their bootstraps and get to work to show the hostile forces, here I'm quoting North Korean state media, quote-unquote, you know, deal a telling blow to the hostile forces who go with bloodshot eyes, miscalculating that sanctions can bring the DPRK to its knees. So the idea that, um, you know, we've survived under sanctions for years, we can continue surviving under sanctions. So this is what we're going to do. And that's a little bit of a shift then um, from, you know, recent statements, including the New Year's Day address, where I think the implication was that, um, North Korea might be able to work towards sanctions relief and that nuclear weapons and nuclear status would guarantee prosperity for North Korea. So I think the idea is now shifting and Kim is effectively warning the country that prosperity might not come immediately, but they can continue to survive under sanctions. Um, so that, you know, from Kim Jong-un's perspective is the equivalent of Trump simply letting this become a back burner issue and that North Korea just continues doing what it's been doing, surviving under sanctions while expanding its nuclear forces and not really counting on the United States uh, to um, enter talks in good faith and work towards sanctions relief. And of course, that might mean that the inter-Korean side of this process also suffers, which is something that Kim didn't directly address. But uh, that's, I think, something to uh, also keep in mind. Mm -hmm. And it, it did seem like the, the this focus on you know the, the, the so-called uh, self-reliance uh, by North Korea um, is something that they're doubling down on uh, now that now that there is this uh, focus uh, away from the the U.S. approach after the Hanoi summit, 
Um, and it did seem like, you know, we've gotten reports now about some visits that uh, Kim Jong-un has been making to like economic projects in the country yeah. uh, to show that, you know, there's there's resilience in the North Korean economy. And I guess, as you said, right, it, it, re it really is tough to figure out what's going on in North Korea. You, you could talk about this as, as some of the media reporting does on as a source of strength, but it also may be the case that, I mean, he's, he may also be responding to, as you said, domestic pressure in the country, but also the fact that the North Korean economy might not be still be doing uh, too well as well, right? Right. So, you know, I mean, Kim Jong-un last April declared a new strategic line uh, that replaced the kind of policy that uh, drove the country for five years between 2013 and 2018, which was the Pyongyang policy of simultaneously pursuing a nuclear deterrent and economic prosperity. So Kim declared last April that the nuclear deterrent was completed at the end of 2017. He said that was a great thing. And then now the focus must be on the other half of that, uh, the economy, and that's the new strategic line. And there's an easy way and a hard way to pursue the new strategic line. The easy way is... You go to a summit with the U.S. president, things go well, you get sanctions relief, North Korea begins the process of reintegrating into the global economy with uh, having access to the kind of things that it used to have in the past, and that really enables its economic development. So that's the easy way. And now what I think we're seeing uh, with the latest meeting is that the easy way is impossible right now, so let's continue working on the new strategic line, but the harder way, which is through self-reliance, so they're going to double down on autarky and hope that that can realize economic growth. So yeah, they ha you know there have been a bunch of um, inspections uh, all over the country by Kim Jong-un and other senior officials over the past year. Kim's been fairly critical of kind of things like management techniques and things like that around the country. And the hope was for a long time that the inter-Korean process would mean that the South Koreans would be willing to simply move ahead and work with North Korea, even if that meant violating international sanctions. But of course, um, you know, President Moon hasn't been willing to do that to date. Um, mm -hmm. So that really leaves North Korea with few good options. Uh, doesn't mean that they're about to, you know, capitulate to the United States. No, I think they can probably continue, you know, they can wait this administration out if they need to under sanctions. So, um, and I think, uh, you know, we'll have to see if uh, the provocations resume, but I'm doubtful, you know, Kim had hinted in his uh, New Year's Day speech that if the United States tested his patience, he would have to pursue a new way. Uh, we don't know exactly what that new way is, but... Um, you know, it might not be the old way, which was literally just provoking the United States and hoping that gets you somewhere. Yeah, so that that gets to another interesting angle to this. Um, and you wrote about this recently as well, right? This this notion of a new way, you could think about it uh, as being from a more sort of military perspective, or you can think about it as perhaps uh, North Korea's relationship, uh, including vis-a-vis -vis China, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and in terms of North Korea's options, I mean, now that it's trying to boost its economy and, and get the domestic side going, um, it's looking at relationships not only between South Korea and the United States, but also China, Russia, and others. Um, so since the Hanoi summit, uh, no meeting so far between Kim and, and Xi Jinping. Um, but you wrote a piece recently as well, noting that apart from the North Korea-China relationship, another relationship that we should kind of pay attention to is North Korea's uh, relationship with Russia and whether Kim Jong-un might um, sort of try to increase uh, ties and perhaps outreach towards Moscow, even potentially a, a meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin, which he hasn't actually done to date, right? Yeah. So, 
that's been something I've been thinking about, which is that the new way, um, you know, it might be China. Uh, of course, China is also partly also the old way, but there is a great deal of mistrust in the North Korea-China relationship, despite the summit meetings between Kim and Xi over the past year. Um, what's also interesting is that after Singapore, uh, you know, Kim went to China to basically brief Xi Jinping about what happened in Singapore. Uh, he hasn't done that after Hanoi, as you noted. And he could have done that very easily, right? He took the train. The train had to pass through uh, northern China. He could have stopped in Beijing and just seen Xi on his way back from Vietnam. He chose yep. not to do that. Um, and, of course, during the first... Uh, Xi Kim meeting last March, uh, one of the things Xi Jinping really emphasized was high-level exchanges, that this must be kind of the the guiding princi- principle of the uh, China-North Korea relationship. So that, I think, doesn't bode particularly well for the China-North Korea relationship in the short term. Um, the other thing is that, you know, a new way with Russia would be interesting because, uh, you know, obviously North Korea and the Soviet Union have a story history and Russia is a different country at the end of the day. And there are a few uh, geopolitical affinities between Putin and Kim in a way, right? Uh, Putin effectively, since 2014, really finding himself at odds with the West and mm-hmm. Kim Jong-un similarly so. And Russia is interested in integrating its Far East economically and um, sanctions really for North Korea, for example, something that Russia, China, and North Korea uh, supported in a trilateral statement uh, that was released last uh, November, I want to say, maybe it was October. But um, that could be an important game changer. And just looking at North Korean state media after the Hanoi summit, uh, what's been interesting is there's been a lot of reporting on high-level diplomacy in Pyongyang involving the Russian ambassador, the Russian interior minister just visited the country, there was a Russian parliamentary delegation, there's been very little mention about the Chinese embassy's activity uh, in in Pyongyang. Whereas in February, right before the summit, there was a lot of reporting on what um, on what China and North Korea were doing, right? So that's an interesting change, I think, uh, in the pre Hanoi post Hanoi um, world. And I think we are seeing the groundwork being laid for possibly the next summit that Kim Jong Un attends to be with Vladimir Putin. Um, so I think that's something to watch for because if if North Korea decides that its cards are best played towards Russia and China, um, you know, especially in, quote-unquote, a new era of great power competition or whatever, um, that could really backfire for the United States. And even if Kim doesn't get what he wants, which is Security Council sanctions relief, because France, the UK, and the United States do have vetoes on a Chinese and Russian proposal for that, um, if China and Russia simply decide that they're not going to take sanctions implementation seriously at all, um, that could really give the North an important economic lifeline in the short term. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that set of relationships is really important to to think about because I think when we think about sanctions lifting, that has implications and ripple effects for other countries as well. I mean, one of the interesting things about the Hanoi summit, the timing was interesting that it happened uh, this year. But of course, you know, Vietnam is going to be holding the chairmanship of ASEAN next year. Um, that's going to put it in a very interesting position on on the North Korea issue. And North Korea is maintaining, continues to maintain, right, still links with several Southeast Asian states. So I'm sure just like uh, these various countries that we've talked about are calibrating their relationships with North Korea, the United States and other countries, you know, other countries will be looking to leverage these dynamics as well. So Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, I think North um People talk about North Korea as an isolated state, but it has diplomatic ties with over 120 countries. It's fairly, uh, you know, if if um, there is a quiet enough period where we don't see any North Korean provocations, right, we're already going on above a year. Um, and North Korea has gone much longer in the past without launching ballistic missiles or d- doing nuclear tests. 
um, I think I think slowly but surely North Korea could find itself um, being perceived very differently on the world stage. Um, so that I think is part of the reason why Kim Jong Un has an interest in not reverting back to the old way of staging provocations, but kind of really doubling down on on this charm offensive that's really been underway since the beginning of 2018 and and hoping that does get him somewhere even if it's not going to be with the united states um anyways uh prashant great discussion uh thanks for joining me good to be with you yeah and uh for our listeners if you like what you heard on the podcast but you haven't yet subscribed uh, you can do that on uh, itunes google play or any number of other podcast providers and um if you have been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review on any of those platforms, um, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.